Chariot Developer News, episode number 62. The JVM wins. The JVM wins. The JVM wins. In this episode, well, the JVM wins, which means that although our lead story by Wired calls it a renaissance, JVMs have always been there, providing high scalability, support for a multitude of languages, yes, including Java, and fantastic tooling. We talk about two newer tools built into the JVM as of version 7, discuss four great articles on testing, writing components, and animations at AngularJS. We then discuss a free machine learning text and tutorials on Twitter Bootstrap 3 and more. Got a day left to do a field trip and want to learn more about the latest trends in large-scale data processing, analysis, and techniques? Come to downtown Philadelphia on October 30th to our Data IO show. We'll have talks on subjects such as Hadoop, HBase, Neo4j's Graph Database, scientific processing with Python's NumPy and SciPy, and much more. See the emerging generation of large-scale, high-volume data processing analysis and meet the leaders who are making it happen today. That's October 30th at the Sierra Center in Philadelphia. Tickets are only 80 bucks. Sign up at mergingtech.chariotsolutions.com slash dataio2013. The developer news is sponsored by Hadle. Want to increase your team's productivity? Try Hadle. It's a question and answer system that lets people ask, answer, and rate questions. Internal company information gets hard to find lives in emails, or only in experts' heads, stop the repetitive question and answer sessions on topics they've already covered. Share that information with Hadle. It's like a private stack overflow or Yahoo Answers site for your own company. More information, including a free trial, at hadle.com. That's H-A-Y-D-L-E.com. And by Chariot Solutions Education Services. Public and private training and mentoring in subjects such as Spring, Maven, Scala, Grails, Android, and more. Inquire about private tech training by the developers who bring you this podcast Philly Emerging Technologies for the Enterprise, and much more. We only teach the things we do. Visit us online at chariotsolutions.com slash education. Now on to the developer news. All right, Joel, well, it's you and me this week at the Cherry Developer News, episode number 62 for what day is it? Monday, September 30th, 2013. Absolutely. Yep. I'm Ken Rimple. I'm Joel Confino. A couple things this week, not a ton. Um, but uh, especially around Java and Java 8, it seems like uh, uh, Java is getting its steam uh, head of steam back again. And that's kind of nice for us to see because uh, for a long time, people who aren't Java developers thought that Java was just some stupid browser uh, tool. And so uh, I don't know, Joel, if you saw the Ain't It Good to Be Right uh, link that I put up, but uh, the second coming of Java is a Wired Enterprise uh, blog article. Mm-hmm. Some of it I take exception to slightly only because we never really left. I mean, you and I have been doing Java for a long time. I mean, now you're kind of stepping away from it a bit. But um, most everyone that I know that's working in Java never really went away from it. No, it's it's been like the most popular language for a long time. I think there have been valid discussions about how much longer or has it peaked or will it have like this long, slow decline. But I think it's still the biggest uh, language, I'm pretty sure, at least if not – the biggest it's like one of the top two or something right so this came out on september i think actually uh 11th or sometime near it um oh no on september 25th the other one was september 11th and so this is kade metz um and he started off with a story uh talking about uh biz stone and twitter uh and in 2010 russian president dmitry medvedev uh visited twitter and he was going to tweet something on twitter uh but it turns out that he wasn't going to tweet it on the regular Twitter site. He tweeted it on some sort of prototype site. Um, so it turns out that uh, they couldn't really keep it running for any length of time with large amounts of events. 
with you know if if a heavy event came up, we'd crash the service. And the service was written originally in Ruby on Rails. And so I remember even if we go back, you look at the Chariot TechCast archives, uh, the other podcast we have, and that's at emergingtech.chariotsolutions.com slash techcast. If you search for the web framework shootout, uh, there was one from 2008, actually, and we had uh, Obi uh, Hernandez or Fernandez on, who was a big Ruby on Rails proponent. And uh, the panel discussion got him all twerked up because they mentioned about Rails not scaling. <laughs> I remember that. That was pretty humorous. It's great. You know, you go back and listen to like you know back about five six years ago and, and see where the state of the of the, uh, the world was. A lot of it was people planned on taking everything and making it Rails, and uh, because a it was easier to program in, was more quote unquote fun. Uh, there was less code, um, and it performed well enough for most operations for you know internal websites, and you could get it to scale. But there was it was a lot. This is so cool. And watching you walk. <laughs> so people can't I am see running this. to get my power cord yes i'm i'm watching you walk uh I, i've got the perspective of his head right now and he's walking through his house anyway um but the point being that you know rail certainly has its place and it it went through a huge uh curve of adoption and now i think rails has kind of settled down to be in not in the background but be something that's uh popular but not taken over uh, and there are a lot of other Ruby-based frameworks out there that in some ways are more uh, agile to work with or more customizable quickly. Um, you know, I'm thinking like Sinatra and things like that where you kind of build a little stack. Um, but anyway, I know I'm kind of rambling here. So they started talking about, you know, Ruby on Rails and how uh, Twitter was built on Ruby on Rails. Uh, and then it turned out they just couldn't scale it the right way. Uh, and they saw where Java, the virtual machine, had been going and realize that, you know what, Java not only is a language, but it's a platform, as we've been saying all along, uh, and that, you know, there are a lot of programming languages you can pick from. And something like a Scala is also expressive in less code. Uh, and they ended up using Scala and also Clojure and Java on top of the JVM. And they're doing hundreds of services running in small VMs uh, instead of one big platform. And so they can just keep ramping up services as they need to, and when a VM dies, so what? So you terminate it and add another one. So pretty cool. And uh, how's that power working for you? <laughs> I think I think I have it. But <laughs> we really should have. <laughs> by the way, for for the inside baseball, we were trying to get um, we were trying to get ourselves up on UStream, and uh, I think we'll probably figure it out by the next podcast. But this would have been an awesome UStream. <laughs> <laughs> I think I made it right as my Mac was dying. Good but, time. I mean, I mean, the VM is the Java virtual machine is you know, probably the most scalable or at least one of the most reliable, you know, runtime platforms. And so it makes a lot of sense Absolutely. that Twitter would move to that. And that, you know, for, for, for Ruby, even for Ruby in general, there's a lot of tweaking that needs to be done to the VM. It's really as uh, the folks on the discourse project, the open source project discourse put it, it's all upside. So yeah. there's a lot of room for improvement. I expect Ruby to get a lot faster. But right now, Java is just a world ahead in that. And so that leads a lot of people to run uh -oh, even sorry. like JRuby, which which we're doing right now. So, um, right. you know, I think that it makes a lot of sense. And the JVM is here for to stay for a long time. Yeah, it is. You've got all that experience, you know, uh, of the various uh, revisions of the JVM and memory uh, management techniques and, you know, garbage collection techniques that just, you know, you, you can't just throw that all away and start from scratch and get anywhere. In fact, um, it looks like uh, Facebook uh, refused to go to Java. And they're just like, we're not going to do Java, we're not going to do Java. They ended up having to write their own JVM, so to speak, for, for PHP. 
So they have their own um, PHP virtual machine with garbage collection and just-in-time compiling. Um, so they, as he puts it in this, that's the uh, exception that proves the rule. You know, the exception went out and said we're going to stay in PHP. Oh, we can't really perform well enough. We have to build our own virtual machine. So there you are. Um, so that's interesting. Also, it was uh, mentioning that there was a, a conference, and they referenced this in the link. In fact, I clicked on it and started playing this OSCON uh, 2011 conference session, Java on the on the cusp of Java Renaissance, uh, and Bob Lee kind of laid it out. He was at Square at the time, still is, I think. Um, and talking about, or maybe it was at Google at the time, but talking about, um, you know, how the JVM is really a platform. It's not just a language that runs on something. It's really a platform. So nice article for those of us who've been doing Java and Java-related uh, platform-based languages. We all just kind of smile when we see stuff like this. But it's, you know, good. it's kind of like good to see, you know, that uh, what we've been working on so long uh, has a nice long uh, potential future. Yeah, it's not cool anymore. It's very utilitarian now, and it actually is dependable. So it's moved from cool to dependable. And in many ways, Ruby and Rails has actually moved from cool to dependable. And I think what's cool now is JavaScript and Node yes. and a lot of those other things. And not to say they're not without merit. They are with merit. But but that's, I think, where the cool you know the cool space is right now. The cool kids say, play with JavaScript. <laughs> um, hey, why don't we talk about cool in Java, though? I do have a few things. Joel, did you know that the J-Rocket people were bought by Oracle? Um, I guess I sort of figured Oracle eventually buys everybody. <laughs> it's Java. You are mine. Um, <laughs> so it turns out that um, they did. They bought it. And now I'm not sure when they were acquired, but uh, Appeal was the company name. Uh, it turns out that they've got a couple of different features that have just started appearing in Java SE 7, starting with Update 40, which just came out recently. Um so it turns out that they've got uh, something called Java Mission Control. I don't know if you've ever seen Java Mission Control before. But, I have uh, not. No, this looks intriguing. It's actually two things, and they come with it, which is really cool. I've got to play with this as soon as I get off the podcast. Um, Java Mission Control uh, is, is something that will basically tell uh, what's going on with the VM. Uh, it's, you can see an analysis of like uh, data that was collected by something called a Java Flight Recorder, which they also give you. So they say that they'll take 2% overhead on the VM, and they'll collect production data for you that you can then go back and get performance metrics out of and information out of and kind of profile it. Hmm. Um, and it's bundled with the VM. So that's really cool. Um, I'm not sure what they're doing. I'll have to take a look and see what's going on with uh, JRocket. Um, but that originally, I think, came from JRocket. And so um, you know, this will run not only the JRocket VM, but on Hotspot as well, which is really neat. So if you haven't played with it, and I will honestly put my hand up and say I haven't played with this, um, it looks like there's a, a tool out there, or at least two tools, Java Mission Control and Java Flight Recorder, that can help you uh, find out what's going on in more detail in the VM. And if you happen to be using um, JRocket, which again was purchased by Oracle, you can use it the same tools against both the standard hotspot VM and the JRocket VM. Do you want to talk about the machine learning uh, materials here? Sure, let me just uh, check C them out. Yes, yeah, CIML.info. Actually, I did not put this on here. Did you? Oh, any okay. Chance? You know what? It must have been our robot friend. Uh, yes. <laughs> yes. Sujan Kapadia could not make it this week, um, but we did post one of his notes here. So uh, he does have something about a course in machine learning by Hal Domey III. Uh, and so this is the whole set of introductory materials that cover most major aspects of modern machine learning, which includes supervised learning, unsupervised learning, large margin methods, whatever that is, probabilistic modeling and learning theory, etc. So it looks like a very involved uh, document. 
and it looks like you can get them all as individual PDFs, or you can, I guess, pre-order a book. Um, and I see mathematical formulas here, and it makes me scared, but I'm sure that's what it's all about. No, this actually looks really good. Yeah, just glancing through it, I've uh, the people who make uh, Weka, which is a machine learning um, library, mm-hmm. they wrote a book and I uh, called Data Mining, which I read. It was very good, and this is, you know, really good. It looks like a really good intro to machine learning. Yeah, uh, and it's absolutely free. It's amazing the amount of free stuff. Coursera probably oh has some good machine learning stuff. I know that uh, for Stanford's machine learning. Uh, professors put some really good stuff out there for free. I read, uh, viewed one of the podcast or one of their video courses. It was actually a regular course, a videotape of their regular course on machine learning. So there's just so much good stuff, but this looks like really great. Kind of goes over all the different, because machine learning is this giant catch-all phrase, really, that he goes into a lot of the different types. Yeah, so actually I've been flipping through it. It looks like some of the later chapters uh, have three pages in them. The second page is to do. Um, (laughs) but that's okay. I mean, you know, it looks like it kind of stops. So it looks like they're working out kind of somewhere on chapter 12, 13, 14. They're still working on them and it's an ongoing book, but Hey, that's a good potential resource to learn about this stuff. Says he's assistant professor of ComSci at the university of Maryland. So here's another one. Uh, this is a collection of tutorials on a website called vidinterest.com and it's for bootstrap three. Now, now bootstrap, uh, has recently come out with version three, getbootstrap.com. So, so Bootstrap 3, if I understand correctly, they, they did mobile first when they built it. They wanted to make sure that mobile worked right out of the box. Hmm. I'm specifically looking at the getbootstrap.com slash CSS page. Um, it says, with Bootstrap 3, we've rewritten the, rewritten the project to be mobile-friendly from the start. Instead of adding on optional mobile styles, they're baked right into the core. Uh, and so basically, uh, you know, you would, you would do things like, uh, let me see it here, um, add like dash responsive to something like an image. And then it will try to figure out whether to wrap it or to put it straight uh, in, a, in a container. Uh, and so you don't see any more Dash mobile things. It just kind of tries to lay things out for mobile to begin with, which is great. So as you get wider and wider, the responsive design is turned on. It will go ahead and put things in the proper grid format. So anyway, so there's a bunch of stuff around that. Um, it looks like this is kind of like a, pod, uh, a uh, screencast bookmarking system. And uh, someone came through and put a collection of those together. The first one is building a responsive site from scratch. The second one uh, deals with collapsing nav bars in a responsive way, uh, which would have the site name and navigation, which has a drop-down button. Uh, Then it creates sticky footers that stay in the browser viewport. Um, Jumbotrons, which is basically used to be the, the, um, what do they call it, the hero unit? Now they're called Mm -hmm. uh, Jumbotrons, large messages for your viewers to see. Another one on the responsive grid system. Uh, which will probably be something you want to pay attention to because basically Bootstrap is a grid-based layout system, and uh, this new responsive grid system is a bit different than the old one. Uh, and then modals. So those are the six that are sitting there now, uh, and that's at vidinterest.com, and I'll post a link to that because I'm not going to repeat that very long URL. Good stuff. Now, actually, I've got to get up on Bootstrap 3. Bootstrap actually is very good. I mean, it's always been responsive, right. so it actually works pretty good, but I like this uh, extra paying attention to mobile. Uh, let's talk about, uh, do you want to talk about the Kinetic Desk? Is that yours? Sure, yes. So this is really cool. Uh, there's The Kinetic Desk basically is this desk from a company called Stirdesk. I guess that's maybe the product and the company name, or the pr- pr- company name Stirworks. Anyway, a guy who used to work on iPods for Apple at some point in his life now <laughs> made this Stirdesk. It's a standing desk. So the idea is that you can say um, the desk is, goes up and down uh, with motors. 
it's all and it's built in the motors are built in so that you double tap the desk and it rises and then you double tap it and it goes down there's a lot of standing desks i mean they've been around for a while but i've been kind of into this idea of you sit all day at your computer yeah and it just kills you and you're kind of a lot of times unless you have really good a really good chair and your desk and your chair all match up to the right heights for your body you're probably uh, destroying like your wrists and your elbows and your neck and, and your i was getting back. a lot of your lower back and your entire body and I was uh, experiencing a lot of wrist and neck pain because I was constantly working in a completely you know, not ergonomic setup. So I actually got this thing called Kangaroo Desk, which is a very cool product that is a standing desk. So it has an up position and a down position, but you manually um, move it up or down. It really moves your monitors up and down. Uh, this is actually an entire desk where it's on riser. Basically, it rises up and down. And those have existed for a while. Specifically, they've been for... A lot of times for people with wheelchairs, the entire right. desk will come up a little bit. Mm-hmm. Much more clunky, though. This basically looks like if Apple designed a standing desk. It has a built-in touchscreen. You double-tap the desk. It keeps track of your uh, the time that you're standing and sitting and how many calories you burn by standing. It like has Bluetooth and you know Wi-Fi and stuff, and so it integrates with health apps. And it also, kind of a cool feature, it reminds you to that it's about time when you should stand by moving the desk gently up an inch and then down. So the desk just sort of like goes up and down briefly, and that tells you, hey, uh, it's time Yo. for me to stand up. Yeah, so it's <laughs> it's cool. You know, it's, it's and it's of course, it looks good. So um, no word on the pricing. Oh, is this, on the, is this on a $10,000 desk? Because it I looks like not. it could be. It could, <laughs> that is actually, it could be. Um, but it looks very cool, and it's really along the whole thing of, you know, if you're going to do this job for 30 years, um, you've got to like at least consider ergonomics or you're going to wear out your fingers and your elbows and your, you know, neck and your back. Now I recently, uh, applied for a patent, uh, around a, a tissue cozy that will smack you in the face. <laughs> <laughs> Wipe your nose. You disgusting parent. No, no, this no? is uh, this is a little, is little gentler, but yeah, <laughs> I check it out and actually check out the, uh, the kangaroo. If you want a, an alternative that you can buy today. You can attach monitors, and it'll basically be a standing desk. I use the kangaroo. Yeah, a, lot, a couple of people at Chariot do. Awesome. All right. Uh, let's see here. I have a couple of AngularJS things, mostly because I've been talking to uh, the creator, one of the two writers for AngularJS in action, Lucas Ribblekey. Uh, and so we've been discussing some of the blog articles. You ever hear of Year of Moo? I do not. Okay. Year of Moo was some website, um, and this person had covered a bunch of different things. I think Moo was one of those uh, – jQuery alternative uh, yes. kits and frameworks, right? Mm-hmm. So I think he spent a year, this writer, writing all about Moo, so hence the year of Moo. And, um, but this writer also then continued on and wrote some other things and, and currently is a big fan of AngularJS. And so he has a two-parter that's just pretty comprehensive. Um, that uh, The first one is uh, covering the animation APIs. So versions of, of Angular... Uh, the first released version that they started supporting and, and talking about was 1.0. And I learned Angular on 1.0.4 I don't know four or something like that. I started learning it back then. Uh, it has since gone up to a 1.1 release line. And they have plans for 1.2, which is coming out, I think, soon. Uh, 1.2 has a lot of things that have been kind of re-architected in the background. One of which is some really good uh, animations, if you're into animating things around. Uh, and so he has some... A very extensive article uh, from going from 1.1.5, which is the current release, to Angular 1.2. 
and then what kind of things you can do uh, with the animation API, like you know, bringing things forward, hiding things, um, you know, fading them in, fading them out, that kind of thing. Oh, this um, looks awesome! It actually, is. it really like this is exactly who you want. Like somebody who's super detailed, spends a ton of time, goes into tons of depth, and kind of makes up for the fact that a lot of times the documentation for these projects is a little iffy. Dude, shout out to you for your good writing style because it looks fantastic. It really does, and it's easy to it's easy to follow. I kind of like the color scheme and everything. Um, and it looks like he's got nice little uh, built-ins for like uh, looking at the code, you know, some test code. Uh, and even you could then kind of uh, go to the GitHub project for each of those things. So that must be some sort of widget from GitHub or something around GitHub. So that's the first article he had. And then this one was also outstanding. I looked through this one. And I was just like, yeah, that's how it works. Um, testing and debugging. Advanced testing and debugging in AngularJS is the second article. And that one is equally deep. Um, in fact, uh, if you take a look at that, it's got 15 or 14 different sections. He has a video attached to it. Um, and he basically featured this at a meetup talk, and he has the actual recording and slides for the talk, too. So however you like to learn, whether it's audio, visual, testing the code, running the code, um, he talks about you know both regular old, um, unit tests, integration tests, the HTTP backend, which is basically what fakes out a backend service for you. Um, you know, And I think uh, he gets into uh, CI environment stuff in here, too. Fantastic article, yet another really good one on Angular uh, around testing. And again, I'll post both of those. The website is yearofmoo.com. So you can probably go to the main page of that and find it. And then Lucas himself actually has a little project that he put together. Um, he has a two-parter on building a sweet, <laughs> he's always funny about it, the way he says things, build a sweet photo slider in AngularJS. Um, so he showed how to build a component uh, that is kind of an animated photo viewer, kind of like, you know, those sliding photos to the left and right kind of thing. Uh, so he goes into a whole uh, discussion and tutorial uh, about writing um, an Angular module, and an Angular, uh, uh, let's see, he uses a controller, he uses a new animation um, object, and I'm sure at some point he turns this into a component. But anyway, that's at onehungrymind.com, -E, and that's his website. So two uh, chunky sets of resources. Uh, and in fact, he's using then the ng touch directive, which lets you like slide the things around and animate the slides. So that's pretty cool too. Very nice. Yeah. All right. So I don't want to give. I don't want to make this the Angular JS show, but I thought those were pretty good. Uh, all right. Bootstrap Angular. Uh, do we want to talk about um, asynchronous servlets for a second? Um, so Spring uh, Four has a concept of uh, MVC asynchronous servlets. So the idea of the asynchronous servlets is simply that you get a, a callable. So if we're looking at this, instead of getting a regular, you get a deferred result. This is another one of those asynchronous, I want to check later for whether the result is finished. Yes. A callback or something yes. like that. Yes. And so this could potentially make it a lot faster than the request response because you can handle, this allows the container basically to uh, do asynchronous IO more like a NETI style it could accept a lot more connections theoretically you could so it helps out the servlet container people basically so they can make your app a lot more scalable um theoretically right i have i found the paragraph that describes kind of the steps so the sequence of events for async request processing and this is on the docs.spring.io site which mm -hmm. by the way spring.io is a new uh domain name for them uh for for all the spring uh apis which is 
different than springsource.org since that organization hasn't existed for three companies. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Even though they call themselves springsource, they really are now they are VMware, now they're pivotal. Um, but spring.io, which I kind of like the fact that they separate out as spring.io and everything's off of there. Um, so they say that uh, what will happen is it's uh, with this deferred result, um, the application produces the asynchronous result from a thread. So number one, uh, the controller returns a deferred result and then some saves it in some in-memory queue or list where it could be accessed. The second step is Spring MVC starts asynchronous processing. Number three is the dispatcher servlet, which is the thing that takes incoming requests. And all configured filters exit the request processing thread, but they leave the response open, almost like they haven't closed writing to it yet. Mm -hmm. The application then sets the deferred result from that thread, and then Spring MVC batch, I'm sorry, dispatches the request back to the servlet container. Um, then the dispatcher servlet is evoked again and processing resumes, resumes with the asynchronously produced result. So essentially it kicks off, hands it off to a thread. The thread's supposed to do the work. When the code from that thread finishes, it get, returns its deferred result. Spring VC wakes up and pushes it back. So what's happening is it's, it's keeping it open as if it was a paused thread, right? So like when you hit a website and you say, give me a report and you're blocked by a database, you're sitting there. Mm -hmm. um, but the difference is, you know, you're sitting there, but it's not a web thread that's taking it. It's a worker thread that's taking it that's separate from the web requests. So you can have a lot of these things hanging in the background, waiting to answer, doing their background processing, and not choke up the HTTP acceptor. No, that makes sense. It just gives you, like, an extra pool to play with. Right, and it's kind of like halfway to, you know, push without really having push. And you could use Ajax, I guess, to ask for something and get it back and not be you know, blocking up the main, you know, socket. Mm -hmm. So interesting stuff there. So we'll post a link to that docs.spring.io. Uh, and that's for 4.0 build snapshot, which is, uh, I guess there's a, there's a, at least a release candidate out there, I think, or at least a, a beta of spring four available. You can download and play with like right now and see these features. I have one more in here too. And I think we'll call it a day. Um, in ZDNet.com, uh, Oracle promises a hundred times faster queries with get ready for this new in-memory option for databases. Hmm. Yeah, it's pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, doesn't that sound familiar now? Oh boy. Um, so yeah, so so they they basically feel that you know anything that's sitting in memory uh, is going to be massively faster than if it has to go to disk, which makes sense because it's sitting in the main bus. It's not sitting somewhere and has to go and do some I/O. Um, so his 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 uh, notes were in the rundown. Uh, again, hundred times faster queries with real time analytics. Querying online transaction processing databases, Gulp, or data warehouse batches. Um, two times increase in transaction processing rates. Um, and then it says transactions are promised to run faster on row formats, so any kind of updates, while analytics do better on column formats. I think they do, I think they do have a column database. Yeah, they do both. It's That's, I think, the trick. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and uh, et cetera. So looks interesting. I mean, the big the big thing with this is that they're saying that this is going to actually work with your existing data. Right, you still so, treat it as Oracle database, right? Yeah, so like if you're a, a, one of the many, many, many companies that uses Oracle, then you don't have to go out and redo all your you know, existing databases. I'm not exactly sure how this will bolt on or drop <laughs> in, but, you, but theoretically you can get this kind of performance improvement without actually changing anything, and that's huge, actually. Now, I mean, Joel, they, right, yeah. go ahead. Yeah, no, go no, ahead. No, so, so it's, a pretty, it's a pretty big statement. And um, for a lot of companies, you know, they could probably get faster performance in certain scenarios by doing going to a different database. But 
um, even like Postgres or uh, in certain configuration, or they could go to a NoSQL database. But I mean, the cost of migrating all those databases is astronomical. So for Oracle to be able to say, basically, we're just going to speed it up and you're just going to pay us a little bit more licensing for this extra module, which is essentially the turbo button for database. I mean, that's a pretty good sell if they can well, do it. And I'm looking at this and I see, I see his solution. His solution is literally throw hardware at the problem because yeah. um, there's a box called the M6. It's M632 big memory machine. Um, Suppose it to be the fastest in-memory machine in the world. It is a, get rid of it, get, get a load of this, um, 32 terabytes of DRAM. Oh my God. <laughs> so, uh, and then you have to say, well, I'll never have that much space. You know, I'm never going to fill 32 t terabytes. What about your whole database sitting in memory? That's probably how. Um, that's insane is what that is. And uh, so that's what they've been doing, I guess, is they've been, you know, also I know they, that when they bought some, they also bought their hardware um, team. And I know they've been, you know, improving machines and doing more servers. Uh, it looks like they're going to throw... Uh, this at people who want to put things in memory could literally run 32 terabytes of DRAM. I don't well, see the number of processors in here, but that's a huge system. Well, the other thing too is that they introduced in the Oracle database backup logging recovery appliance. Yeah, and oh. Ellison joked that he named that himself. But the <laughs> the idea is that it's a pain in the neck to backup databases and backup a lot of databases. So what do you do? You can dump out the SQL, or you could try to use you know some kind of dump command or whatever. But but databases, backing up a database like it's just another collection of files is actually a pain in the neck. And so they're introducing an appliance that will apparently do, you know, make it easier to back up a lot of databases all at once. Because so it just sips the logs from all these databases and keeps them? I believe them. so. That's yeah, cool. yeah. It like ships the update and transaction logs to the backup appliance all the time. And then, um, yeah, so it's 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 basically a solution they should have had you know decades ago or whatever, but it's it's a nice solution. So I, I don't I mean a lot of this is uh, good news for Oracle customers or, you know, or should yeah, be. Yeah, or and and hopefully it just pushes everybody else to be that much better. Uh, but anyway, so you never know. I'd, I'd be very curious to see if anyone actually gets a chance to benchmark this with anything that uh, can really show it real world. No, but no, you can't. Interesting. No, Oracle Oracle never lets you benchmark. No, they'll, they'll they'll take yeah. you out and take you on a fishing trip. Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Sorry, Larry. Like, Larry's going to talk to me about this, I think. I'm going to get a call. Uh, you know, if you want to subscribe to us, you can go to emergingtech.cherrytsolutions.com uh, slash devnews. If you'd like to go to uh, to uh, see our TechCast podcast, our Business of Technology podcast, you can head over to emergingtech.cherrytsolutions.com, click on the podcast menu, and select what you'd like. So that's it. For the developer news, I'm Ken Rimple. I'm Joel Confino. And we'll be more coherent next week. This show, The Cherry Developer News, episode number 62, is available on our Emerging Technologies pages at emergingtech.chariotsolutions.com. Click on the podcast link or use the short URL, emergingtech.chariotsolutions.com slash devnews. You can also subscribe via iTunes. Just search for Chariot Dev News. While you're there, you can browse our interview podcasts, the tech-driven TechCast, and our new business-focused Business of Technology podcast and browse screencasts from our 2012 and 2013 Emerging Technologies for the Enterprise Conferences, as well as our Science of Big Data show from December of 2012. Emerging Technology Resources from Chariot Solutions. That's emergingtech.chariotsolutions.com. For the Dev News, I'm Ken Rimple.